Father, once again, as we think about your word, our prayer is that the words of my mouth, the meditations of all of our hearts, would be pleasing in your sight. O Lord, our rock and our redeemer. Amen. There are lots of things in life that we might find difficult to explain. You know, if you, if you start looking at lists of those things, you talk to people about it, as I have, you know, some similar things begin to pop up. You know, things like, why do we call it a, a driveway when we park on it and a parkway when we drive on it? Or, you know, if, if, if 7-Eleven's open 24 hours a day, seven days a week, 365 days a year, why do they have locks on the doors? Or, you know, the, even the English language, you know, um, so like, you know, plurals, the plural of goose is geese, so that means the plural of moose is, wait, it's moose, right? And, you know, why, if, you, if the plural of ox is oxen, isn't the plural of box, boxen? But no, it's not. You have all these things. I've discovered one of the things I've been wondering about for a while is, you know, why can't I keep a mask on? Uh, they just, you know, they just continue to fall off. There are times where like a double mask in places, and I can't, I can't keep them on. And I realized that I think the cartilages in my ear is really loose, and so it just bends. And I've had this theory that in, you know, in 20 years from now, people are going to say, so why does everybody have ears that look like this? You know, and then will look back and go, oh, 2020, 21, now I get it, yeah. You know, and they think about birds migrating. You know, someone said to me the other day, how is it that a, the birds that hang out in my yard all throughout the, the summer migrate to South America, and then when they come back, they find my yard again? I mean, that's a pretty amazing thing to ponder. And you think about our human bodies and the, the things that our bodies are able to do in response to things. It's, it, some things, I'm sure there are people who figure some things out, but a lot of that is just beyond me. There are things that you just can't quite wrap your mind completely around. And I think Easter is one of those things. I mean, we, we do our best to get a handle on it, but quite frankly, how do you, how do you really describe the indescribable? How do you explain the unexplainable? How, how do you talk about things eternal in words and ways that are temporal? We give it our best shot, and every year we come together, and we, and we try to do it, but quite frankly, we're scratching the surface. And yet, every year we keep coming back, and we keep talking about it, and why do we keep doing that? It's because it's that important. It is so important that even though we may feel like all we're doing is just barely getting a handle on it, we keep working to get a handle on it because the resurrection of Christ is that important. And so we keep reading the Gospels, and we keep reading the stories, and we keep thinking about this, this event that we've read from John this morning. I've always been intrigued by John's description of the resurrection. He gives us details that the other gospel writers don't give. For instance, the fact that after Mary goes to the tomb and she sees that it's empty and she runs back, John tells us that he and Peter have a foot race to the tomb. I don't know if John is younger, if he's in better shape or why, but he gets there first. And interestingly enough, he doesn't go in. 
John's a little hesitant. He stands back and thinking, I don't know what to do. Peter, he's not hesitant about anything. Right? I mean, Peter just, what are you doing, John? And Bart, he just goes right in. And he looks around. And, and John gives us this scene. And, and then he tells us in, in verse 8, he says that John did look in and he believed. John believed. Now, for years, I have read that and thought to myself, John looks in and believes that Jesus is risen. But something I read not too long ago has got my mind thinking about that, and I realize maybe that's not at all what John is saying. Because verse 9 says that after John looked in, John says himself, he says, the disciples did not yet understand from Scripture that Jesus had to rise from the dead. So John looked in, he believed, but then he tells us, but they didn't understand that Jesus had to had to rise from the dead. So he, it doesn't seem like he's, his belief is in the resurrection. And besides that, once they look in, when they get done, Mary doesn't look in the empty tomb and say, oh, I believe Jesus is risen. She is filled with grief because someone stole Jesus. She thinks someone stole Jesus' body. And the disciples don't jump around saying, hey, Jesus is risen. They go home more confused than they were when they got there. So, what is it that John believes? I think John believes that Mary is right. Mary came running to them and said, the tomb is empty. And John and Peter look at each other and say, what? And they run to the tomb. And John looks in and says, yeah, she's right. The tomb is empty. Some things you have to see for yourself before you believe it. Right? I mean, we've all had that experience where someone tells us something, we think, mm, I'm going to have to see that. People talk about the Grand Canyon. You know, they try to describe the Grand Canyon, that it's vast, it's huge, it's big. But until you go there and see it for yourself, you just can't quite get it. Or if somebody came to you and said, I, I know a two-year-old that can recite Shakespeare. You might say to yourself, oh, I might have to see that to believe it. Or if somebody says, I've got a puppy at home that can paint like da Vinci and can actually reproduce the Mona Lisa, I'm pretty sure we'd say, yeah, I'm going to need to see that before I believe that. We try to describe Houghton to people and they look at you and think, now I'm going to have to see that to believe it. You know, there are these things that we, that we have to see to believe. And I think that's what's going on with John here. He has to see it to believe it. But here's the thing that we have to understand. Nobody disagrees about the tomb being empty. Nobody is saying, when, they, when Mary says the tomb is empty and they get there and they say, yeah, you're right, the tomb is empty. There are other people saying, no, it's not. And of course, it's easy to not believe, to believe the tomb's empty because they go in and nothing is in there. Pilate doesn't disbelieve the tomb being empty. In fact, it's the cover story that the soldiers use to sort of placate Pilate. When they go to their religious leaders, they say, what are we going to do? And they say, okay, here's the story. We'll work it out with Pilate, and we'll tell him the disciples came and stole the body. The argument is not, well, I know it looks like the tomb is empty, but it's not. 
They're just saying, look, we know the tomb is empty. We can't do anything about that, so let's make up a story about what happened. And that's important. Because the reality is, anybody can believe the tomb is empty. And quite frankly, there could any tomb in the world could be empty. That's not the point of our faith. The point of our faith is Jesus is risen. And the tomb being empty has significance. One writer says that if, the, if they didn't see the tomb empty, then when they actually saw Jesus, they probably would think they were just hallucinating. The tomb being empty has a part to play in it, but that's not really the point of this day. The point of this day is not the tomb is empty. The point of this day is Jesus is risen. That's what changes everything. That's what makes the difference. That's what we celebrate today. And that's what we celebrate every day. That Jesus is risen. Years ago, somebody said to me, I really, I'm not sure why, why is the cross the center of our faith? Shouldn't the empty tomb be the center of our faith? I mean, shouldn't that be the point? Because the cross, the cross only has so much meaning without the empty tomb. It only takes us so far unless, until the tomb is empty. And I thought to myself at the moment, well, that's kind of true. And they were saying, you know, instead of wearing little necklaces with crosses on them, we ought to wear necklaces or pins with a little, little tomb with stone rolled away in front of it, if they could make those. And I thought, yeah, that's probably true. But the more I've thought about it, I've realized, no, that's not really the point either. The point is not the empty tomb. It leads us to the point, which is that Jesus is risen. And there's significance in the difference. Great scholar F.F. Bruce said that the early Christians didn't believe in the resurrection because they couldn't find Jesus' dead body. They believed in the resurrection because they saw the living Christ. When Paul is describing the resurrection in 1 Corinthians 15, and he's, and he's talking to them about proving the resurrection, he doesn't go back to the empty tomb. What he says is, here are all the people that Jesus appeared to. That's his point. Jesus is risen, and people have seen him. The disciples are not changed. The disciples don't become people of from doubt to faith, and from people who argue about who's the greatest to giving up their lives for the gospel because the tomb is empty. That just confuses them for a while. The change takes place because they begin to realize, because they see that Jesus is risen. That's the point. That's where our faith rests on the fact that Jesus is risen. The discussion in the, in the first centuries of, of the church about who is Lord, Jesus or Caesar, do not rest on an argument about the tomb being empty. They rest on an argument of we've seen Jesus. Jesus has conquered death, and therefore he is Lord. God has raised him up, Paul says, and therefore every knee will bow and every tongue will confess that Jesus is Lord because he has risen. We operate in a different, whole different sphere of thinking because Jesus is risen. The teachings of Jesus now make sense because Jesus is risen. 
It's not the empty tomb that gives meaning to Jesus' teaching about blessed are the peacemakers or blessed are the humble or turn the other cheek or love is the way that people will know you're my disciples. The empty tomb doesn't move us toward that. The risen Christ makes that live and real and have significance. The empty tomb doesn't demand surrender and obedience. The risen Christ does. The empty tomb doesn't call us to pledge allegiance to Jesus and call us to worship Jesus. It's the risen Christ to whom we pledge allegiance and to whom we worship. And it may seem like a subtle distinction, but I think there are some differences that are important for us. Because it's the risen Christ that shakes the world. It's the risen Christ that turns everything upside down about all of our cultural assumptions that we tend to live with. I think when Peter and John, I think one of the reasons Peter and John run to the tomb is because they do want to see for themselves. But I also suspect it's because women are not considered valid witnesses in first century Palestine. They're not allowed to testify in court cases. They're not allowed, they're not taken seriously. And so I suspect there's something in Peter and John and maybe the other disciples saying, oh, come on, Mary. Really, there she goes again. There's those women again. And so they run to the tomb because they want to prove what's right. And what I find fascinating is that take all the teachings of Jesus take root and have meaning, including the teachings of how we value and give worth to people. All those things make sense now because Jesus is risen. It's the fact that Jesus is risen that all of our cultural assumptions are shattered. Those cultural assumptions that everybody has about women and about race and about nationality and about class and status and who has value and who doesn't, who has more value and who has less value. All of those things are turned upside down, not by an empty tomb, but by the risen Christ. It changes our way of thinking. When Jesus says that we, if you want to be his disciples, you take up your cross, deny yourself and follow him, that only makes sense in the context, not of an empty tomb, but of a risen Christ. We're following him. There's something about our focus being on the empty tomb that is simply saying, all I want to do is, is what I can see, and I want to get rid of, let's just get rid of the problems of life. Whereas the risen Christ is calling us to presence with him. It's as if we came out, like the Israelites came out of Egypt and they were freed from, from the bondage of the Egyptians. But all they ever did was just wander around the wilderness instead of going into the promised land. And as wonderful as the empty tomb might be, it would just be wandering around in confusion if they hadn't seen the risen Christ. That's where our faith rests. That's what changes not only the world, but changes you and me about our allegiances, 
about our obedience, about the demands of the gospel, are rooted in the one who conquered death. That's where our faith lies. I'm convinced that if the, if the evil one cannot get us to reject Jesus, the next best thing he will do is to try to get us to focus our attention away from Jesus on things about Jesus. So we focus our attention on the empty tomb, and we think that's wonderful, instead of focusing our attention on the presence of the living Christ. And there are all kinds of things that we do that with. Good things. Gifts of God to us. We can focus our attention and think that the most important thing are the gifts that we have and the things that we accomplish for Jesus. We can think that, that the best thing we have is, uh, the most important thing of life is, is the Bible and reading the Scripture. And it is, it's awesome, but if that becomes more important than Jesus, then we, our focus is wrong. All the ways in which we interact with things like politics, as important as those things are and as necessary as those things are, if they become more important to us than Jesus then our focus is on the empty tomb instead of the risen Christ. And we've missed it. And the, the problem is, when our focus is on anything other than Jesus, it skews our view of Jesus. And Jesus becomes something that we use, something we manipulate, something that we can give or take. And the demands of the gospel on us are simply things that are options that we can choose instead of the very foundation and focal point of our lives. Where does our faith rest? In his book, Surprised by Hope, N.T. Wright says that he has this fantasy that keeps popping into his mind that some, a wealthy donor gives the most beautiful unimaginably fantastic painting to one, of the, to one of the colleges there in Oxford. And this painting is so glorious, it, it almost emit, emits just this, this fabulousness about it. He said, the problem that the school, the college has is what to do with it, where to put it. Because every place they put it, it's, it's just too grand for for the space. It, it's too grand for the grandest buildings they have. It's just too much, too big, too glorious. And so they finally come to the, the solution that the only thing they can do is tear down all the buildings of the college and put this painting in the middle of it and build everything around it. And everything to be like it. And he said, it's not that the donor comes and says, look, if I give you this painting, you have to tear down everything. It's just that the painting is so monumental and so transformational that that's the only thing they can do. And he says, that's what I think of when I think of the resurrection. That the risen Christ is so glorious, so wondrous, so beautiful, 
so magnificent, so powerful, so victorious, that the only adequate response is to ask him to tear us down so he can rebuild us with our focus fully and completely on him. And when that happens, then we begin to bear witness. We begin to be image bearers of Christ who has conquered death because that's our focus. I love what G.K. Chesterton says. He says that in the upper world, hell rebelled against heaven. But now in the resurrection in this world, heaven is rebelling against hell. And that is the glorious promise and invitation that God is giving us. That in the risen Christ, if we'll let him, he'll transform us, make us new, change our lives, change everything about us that we might be image bearers of his change in others in this world through his glorious grace. Most Holy Father, we thank you for your blessings. We thank you that Christ is risen. And we ask, Father, that you will give us the desire and the passion to want the risen Christ to be everything that we are. And we ask this in his glorious name. Amen.